Hello and welcome to the Essential Adventure Sport Podcast, where our aim is to shed some light on the world of adventure sports, be that top tips and best practice for coaches, leaders or guides, inspiring expeditions, or just a chat with one of the many interesting people who work and play in the outdoors. We really welcome interactions and discussions. So if you have an idea of a subject you'd like covering, or you'd like to contribute to the show itself, then please drop us a message. It's time to sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Essential Adventure Sport podcast. This week we're joined by our international friend, Todd Johnson-Wright, um, and Todd's the director of Adventure Sport at St. Michael's College in Vermont. So thank you very much for joining us, Todd. No problem, man. Glad to be here. Cool. Do you want to give us a, um, a bit, of, bit of background on yourself, so how you got involved in adventure sports and the sort of things that you get up to in either your work and or your free time? Uh, sure. So uh, I started an adventure sport in the mid-90s. Uh, prior to that, I was in the military and um, <clears throat> I uh, was involved in uh, mountain warfare and military mountaineering. And uh, some, suddenly the light bulb went on and I realized I could uh, do all this stuff uh, recreationally without having to carry a firearm. So uh, that was a big kind of uh, paradigm shift for me. Uh, and I worked professionally as a mountain guide and climbing guide for a number of years. And then I discovered paddle sport, realized quickly that's a far more civilized activity um, and uh, literally jumped into it with both feet. Uh, so I spent quite a bit of time in boats, spent a bit of time riding bicycles in the mountains, and I occasionally uh, get out and do a bit of climbing, uh, rock and ice climbing. Brilliant. So you got a wide, a wide background. So it's going to be really interesting because today we're going to talk all about practice. Um, and I know we've got people who, who come, who listen to this to the show that come from different backgrounds. And we get some people here who are just listening who are kind of let's call them personal performers. So people who just go out to have their own adventures, which is great. And then another section of the people who listen, they'll be the guys who are into the the coaching or doing instructing. So hopefully we can cover both sort of angles. And that's great because um, I'm both a coach and a uh, personal practitioner. So I'm engaged on the other side of it too, uh, particularly in mountain bicycling, uh, kind of learning and uh, practicing to get better. All right. Well, let's let's get started then. So, um, is is something to start us off? Something that that I definitely hear a lot. You just need to go and practice. They say you know to get better, just go and practice. So, my question for both of you is: Is this a useful thing to say, and is it an easy thing for people to go and do? It's interesting. I'm uh, as a paddle sports coach and a mountain biking coach. I am uh, I'm guilty of giving that. Uh, feedback and action plan to far too many students. Um, and when I reflect back on it, uh, yeah, I didn't do it as a cop-out. I did it really to uh, encourage them to go out and engage in practice. And what I realized is that um, they, because I didn't structure to practice, they did exactly what I asked them to do. They went out and rode their bike more, or they went out and paddled a bunch more. And when they came back for the next session, I realized that, oh, they haven't really um, gotten that much better. Uh, and that's actually one of the things that kind of got me to this whole really doing, really unpacking and uh, thinking about practice. Um, because 
while engaging in sport is phenomenal and there's tons of benefits from it, um, often just going out and saying, hey, I just paddle a bit more, or mountain bike a bit more, or climb a bit more, um, it's not intentional, it's not purposeful. Um, and so there isn't a lot of, uh, there isn't always an increase in performance. Um, and I think that's one of the big challenges that we face. So just thinking about, you know, if I was a student and I, I got that little bit of um, an action plan, like you called it, um, I guess one of the difficulties is knowing what to do. Like you say, you use the phrase there, how you structure your practice. Um, so I guess one of the, one of the hard things people to go away with is, well, is just going and doing useful in itself. And like you said, possibly there are some, but well, there are some benefits just going and engaging in, in, in some, some sort of activity. Um, but you use the phrase there, we'll probably come on to it later about being purposeful with our practice. Um, and I guess that's something that we're going to look into a little bit later on anyway. If, if people just go out and get involved in activity, then what sort of, what sort of benefits do you see people, um, coming away with from just going and, and engaging in being on the water or being in, on the hill or on a mountain bike, whatever it might be? Um, yeah, that's really interesting because most of my clients are involved in um, paddle sports for recreational reasons and they come to it with differing motivations. Um, some people aren't, aren't necessarily driven to continue, continually advance their technical skills, for example. But a common refrain I get from clients is that they want to feel more confident in order to extend the comfort zone and, and as a consequence to perhaps paddle in conditions that they currently find more challenging. Um, and so it's possible that the experiences they have in their free time leads them to that point. But I've noticed that I can add value to their their planning by getting them to discuss the ways in which they're going to extend that experience. Um, and I often try to uh, embrace that within coaching sessions. You know, I often work off headlands at Anglesey with patches of dynamic water around. And frequently when I get there with my clients, they look to me in expectation for me to structure the activity. And to an extent, it's part of my job. Um, and I could be very directive, which might feel appropriate with some people sometimes. I'm increasingly trying to get them to take some ownership over the way in which we're going to structure their activity, their practice within the session to get them involved in the decision-making process. And I've found that if I'm able to do that, it's a lot easier then to discuss with them how they're going to organize their practice in their own time. Because we've got some concrete examples that we just shared and we can use that as an in for what they're going to do when I'm not around, when there isn't a coach there. So Nick just uh, said something like a super interesting and got me thinking about um, you know the populations that Nick works with and I work with are predominantly recreational enthusiasts and um, you know what you know what what is their level of interest in um, getting better and what is the how do they measure their performance and so if we think about you know competitive sport the metrics are pretty clear I mean there's someone there's people keeping score there's people keeping time um, 
it's, it's extremely measurable. And so when Nick uh, used the word confidence, I think that's often what folks are chasing. They're chasing that increased confidence. And I think that particularly looking at it from the coaching standpoint, um, we can link that confidence with competency. And so that um, that's really the, that's really, if they're feeling more competent, um, that is a result of their individual competency that, you know, we're helping to, we're helping to build that competency either in those lead sessions or in those sessions in between sessions where they're going and finding that uh, patch of dynamic water and saying, hey, you know, Nick gave me the tools to not only play for play in the zone and enjoy it, but actually use it um, to improve my competency and then up my confidence. One of the barriers I can see, and I agree with both of you on the the confidence, um, uh, the confidence level improves, then that can have knock on effects for other areas. So, I guess one of the barriers is that. Um, the confidence level in order for that to improve means they've got to expose themselves to to situations and environments so um i wonder how how best people do that while still feeling that they have kind of some control and some safety over what they do i think some of my experiences maybe match some of yours and when we're delivering coached or led sessions and a portion of the time with a for them because it's a safety net and um, just in case something goes wrong and that um, we're there to deal with those problems so how can people or how do you think people go about developing those areas when they don't necessarily have that safety net there i'll, I'll make a suggestion matt um reflecting on my previous answer and using the same example of the work i most commonly do um it's often the case that um I'm at a venue where there's opportunity to develop skill and frequently it's within the um, within the confidence level of the clients We're there it's an appropriate place to be and if I paddled away and left them they'd safely get themselves home that that bits not in question we're there to develop skill and experience and ability um, and Frequently, I find that one of the useful things I can do with my clients is to explore with them creative ways to use the environment. And we've used the phrase hard moves on easy water, which is very subjective. I mean, what is easy water? Um, in my case with my clients, it's a place where it's, it's appropriate for them to go and experiment. And it's that process of experimentation that sometimes I can add value to because I'm kind of obliged to do a lot of that in my coaching life. And I find that in sports that I just participate in recreationally. I, um, I'm used to organizing my practice in creative ways so that I can get an increased level of technical competence and increase my understanding of the environmental demands in environments where I can still look after my own safety. And then when it's time to step up, that that preparatory work I've done helps me a great deal. I'm remembering the years I spent developing my whitewater kayaking skills, and that was kind of exactly what we did. We made every eddy we could find on a section of rapid before we stepped up to the next grade. Well, I'd like to think we did that. I have a feeling we might not have done on a few occasions, but I think my 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 uh, my principle stands. I, I'd just like to echo what uh, Nick said, and 
that, you know, uh, hard moves on easy water. One of the things I often, the way I frame it with uh, my students and clients is um, high challenge, low consequence. And one of my jobs in my workplace is to, uh, in the context of a lead session, is really to help them identify those zones so that they can go and find those zones when they travel back home or when they revisit the venue that we're using. Um, and that consequence is very much about, you know, whether it be on the river looking downstream and saying, oh, well, if everything goes sideways um, when I'm engaged in practice, what are the what are the downstream consequences? What's the outcome? You know, I can easily swim into that eddy. I can easily swim into that eddy. Uh, maybe I'm just going to have a buddy go downstream a little bit and post up to rescue my boat. Um, you know, so, and then once they, once they have that awareness of the, the environment, then they can begin to really challenge themselves. Um, and I, so I think that that's a, that's a, if we could think about things that we can give the learner or the client, um, that awareness of how to use the environment uh, intentionally is massive. That's a that's a massive gift we give folks. From what you're saying there, then you both feel that it's it's definitely um, something that people can do to go away and practice effectively without having a a coach or an instructor or somebody with them. As long as they've got a set of tools that, that are going to help them do that, is that is that what I'm getting from you both? There. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. Um, some people will develop their skills very effectively outside of a coach environment. There are many of us that have arrived at a certain level in, in some adventure sports having never been coached. Um, that could happen through um, fortunate chance. Um, and maybe along the way we've, we've learned a few, a few lessons. I, I really believe that if our clients and students can appreciate what goes on behind the scenes in terms of the the options for for structuring practice um then they're a big step closer to being able to do it for themselves um, that's why i try to share some of my decision making with my clients whenever the opportunity arises mm. so in answer to your question yeah i really do believe it todd i'm interested in, in your because you work um you work in both the mountains and on the and on the the water don't you so do you notice any difference between um the way people engage in developing themselves any differently from the water to how they do on the mountains do they do they feel like i can just i've just in my mind i'm thinking for me to go and and work on my own or practice on my own on a, on a river or somewhere on the sea it might feel like there's a higher consequence level and being in some sort of mountain environments possibly um so you know anecdotally have you kind of come across any differences between the way people um practice in the two environments you know it's interesting uh so and this might be specific to my experience in north america so again i'm super biased um but one i think one of the biggest differences in the climbing world um versus and when i say the climbing world i'm speaking about the climbing world in the context of um you know working with clients or students that have you know contracted you for an experience or to learn skills etc that's very much different than the paddle sports world and the mountain bike world is um that climbing is very much about guiding um at least 
in my experience. Um, and that's the often the expectation from clients. So they learn very specific skills and then they go and apply those skills on their own. Um, and I've kind of, when I'm working with clients in the mountain context, I often switch that up. And I've actually been told by other guides that, hey, you know what, you're gonna teach yourself out of a guiding job. Um, and uh, I always found, I find that to be really odd feedback. And, you know, so like just, you know, mountain movement in the terrain on the approach to an ice climb, I spent a lot of time, you know, like having people think, become very aware and conscious of their footwork as opposed to just throwing them, hey, here are, th here are the three steps we're gonna use to ascend a steep slope. You know, you know, I get them to tune in to, hey, where are your hips in relationship to your feet? Where's your body in relationship to the slope? Hey, the slope's kind of a bit steeper. You know, what have you done differently to accommodate that so you stay in balance? What does imbalance feel like? And, um, you know, part of that is because I'm older and slower and it takes, a, takes me a little longer on the approach so I can keep up. But um, it is interesting that, you know, that that's not always an embraced thing. Um, whereas in the paddle sport and the mountain bike uh, world, it seems as if, or I, in my experience, it just seems to be a bit more about, uh, about teaching, about development. And, you know, back to what I was kind of hearing Nick saying is, um, it's very much about, you know, us uh, kind of showing the clients and hoping that they appreciate, you know, everything that's going on behind the scenes and let it, you know, kind of, and I, and unpacking our decision-making for them so that then they can take that and then they can kind of start engaging in those activities without mediation. And the real value of that is the next time they come, um, they've progressed forward. And, um, and it's also forced me as a coach to kind of, if you will, up my game. Like now I have, you know, I'm working with a higher level performer. So I need to bring, I need to even bring more more tools to that to that experience. Um, so yeah, it's, so I think there is a difference. I'm not sure why or if that's a North American specific thing, um, but the expectation in the climbing world always seems to be a bit more transactional. And then in the mountain bicycling and paddling world, it seems like the expectation is more transformational. That's uh, that's really interesting food for thought and. Um... Matt knows that I don't work in the mountains, but I do like to spend time in them. So if I've got a harness on or if I'm wearing a pair of skis, it's it's a day off. And um, I've spent a bit of time in the mountains around Chamonix, and I've had ample opportunity to watch uh, clients on the end of a very tight rope getting dragged up the Cosmic Arete by their, by their Chamonix guide. And it's uber transactional. Um, as long as there's a couple of photographs taken and they can they can tick the route, they're probably going to come back and take the same guide next year because, and it's usually a he, he got them up that route last year, so they're going to pick a new one. Um, now, in fairness, I mean, clearly it's not a universal experience that people have in the mountains. And a really topical example is this morning, um, I drove out with Kelly to to go to a bouldering coaching session that Kelly had booked with her her bouldering coach. Um, Matt's climbed with me, so he'll understand why I can't be a bouldering coach. Um, and when we got there, uh, Pete um, Pete Edwards, really interesting guy, and 
Matt, you and I, we should we should interview him one of these days. Um, Pete's made it his full time business to to teach movement skills on rock. He 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 doesn't use rope climbing activities, bolted or trad. It's all bouldering, and there's loads of it around here. So he's he's got a pretty good environment. And I uh, I left him to get on with it. Uh, I didn't want to get in the way. And after about an hour, I went back to see how it was going. And as I came into earshot, I could hear Pete asking Kelly questions. I could see they were working on tiptoeing up this slabby boulder problem. And he was asking her about where she thought her foot placements would most effectively go. And once she'd identified them, I could hear him asking about foot angle and pressure and placement. And she was having to come up with a lot of the answers. And even before I got around the corner, I thought, it sounds like there's some pretty good coaching going on here. And it turns out we're going to go bouldering on Saturday to the same place. Pete won't be around, but Kelly's got all these ideas about how she's going to develop her skill. And she's also set some goals for herself for that day. There's a bunch of projects now that we're working on. Um, so, so there you go. That's going to be me on Saturday. And, and as an example of somebody in a mountain environment applying what we would consider to be a, a coaching process, it looked pretty good to me, I have to say. Yeah, that sounds like a really good example, that Nick, of um, of some coaching going on. And I think traditionally, um, maybe traditionally within the UK, maybe it sounds a little bit like in North America, the the the, the mountaineering and climbing awards were predominantly um, seen as being a leadership award or an instructing award. Um, and I think within the last few years, they've definitely started to embrace things as being more coaching orientated and i'd be really you know really interested to hear, to hear from some of the um you know some of the uk providers of of, of the mountain training awards but um I, i've noticed that there's been a little bit of a shift from it just being about that 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 transactional like you talked about and being a bit more transformational so i think there are some parallels between the uk and and the us you know with those sort of um, things in mind well, you've seen, Matt, in, in the UK that um, coaching processes have been embedded into the mountain leader and instructor certifications at a much later stage than ever happened in paddle sports. And thinking about the interview we just had with Lowell, he's now Director of Learning and Development at that national centre. And clearly they've recognised that they want to enhance the coaching processes across all of the activities that they uh, that they offer at that center so I, th- I think there's a lot of it going on in the uk now but there was a time when it was very much our domain in paddle sports eh? i think in the last uh, maybe four or five years they, they've started to do bespoke coaching awards so you can you can um if you wanted to um go and do either a training course um or or a, a course which will lead to a qualification um which has more of a coaching focus on it. So it sounds like you're bringing, possibly Todd, you're bringing those experiences that you've, um, or maybe not, maybe it's been the other way around for you, but you're bringing those experiences that we see as um, paddle sport coaching practices and principles and putting them into your mountaineering, or maybe you were always doing that um, and it's not right to to label them possibly. Well, I think I... I, think I uh... I've always wanted to do it and it's always been kind of part of my practice, whether or not initially I was skilled at it is open for interpretation, but 
you know, my background educationally is in education and, and coaching. So that's always heavily influenced everything I do in the outdoor workplace. Um, it's always, I philosophically, I've always taken the educational approach, but I think I've been, as I'm listening to you guys talk, I've been thinking quite a bit about, um, you know, we kind of lump adventure sport into this, this bucket, you know, like adventure sport. And in many ways, that's like saying, oh, bowling is the same as football. Uh, those are, <laughs> they're two radically different <clears throat> things. They're both sports, but they're radically different. And so I've been, just been pondering climbing as I'm listening to you and, you know, what are the differences? And I, I think, you know, your experience in Chamonix, I'm sure you heard a lot of LA, LA, LA as they're getting dragged up the route. And, um, and usually the metric for guides is, well, I, I've done that in this amount of time. Um, and they take a quick note of that. But I, in many ways, climbing, um, folks can pursue climbing from purely an experience standpoint. They just want to have that experience of getting up on top of something or climbing up something. And I think climbing lends itself to that, where you can take someone at a relatively low level of readiness. Um, and as long as they have enough fitness, you can get them through an experience and it'll be a satisfying experience for them. They'll get the photograph at the top. They'll get some real high value uh, memories from it. Um, but paddle sports, I think to get into that environment that yields that optimal experience, and I may be like, there, we may get a, bit of a whole bunch of negative comments about this. I think that it requires uh, a higher level of uh, learner readiness. Um, and I always, I, every time I take, I have a lot of friends that are climbing guides and they're like, oh, I really want to get on the river and try that. And we do. And the one commonly, the thing that they come back with as we're driving, you know, to get the shuttle sorted, they're like, well, you know what, you know, what really freaks me out about this is the lack of direct control you have over people. And because in climbing, you always have folks on a rope and you can, at, no matter where you are, in most scenarios, you can go static. You know, you can build an anchor and create safety in an otherwise unsafe space. And paddling, um, you don't have that. And so a lot of that is left to the learner. Like you have, one, you have to make a ton of decisions around their level of readiness um, and what risks that they're willing to accept. But you know, the, to have the optimal experience, they need a relatively high level of performance to get into the environment. So in many ways, you know, and I think mountain biking is the same, to have those, to have the experience requires more individual development to get into the zone. And maybe that's why mountain biking, skiing, paddling tend to lend themselves to more of a, less of a transactional delivery. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes I think it makes sense. And you've used mountain biking as an example, uh, and it is the um, when I used to work at the college. Um, on a few occasions, we took the students mountain biking, and I had a, a colleague, Mark, who was you know very good on a bike and um, very good at what he does. And he said to me, "Oh, you should do your you know a mountain biking qualification." And I said, "Not not a chance," because it 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 felt like I had no control. At least if they're in a boat, you know, I can people on a bike. Um, and I to be to be to be again probably people who say that's not true, but 
Um, I think some um, my experiences of mountain biking are that, um, especially with students, younger people, um, is if they can ride a bike, they have this assumed level of 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 competency, and and they we take them to trails like we have a, a local forest trail, which you know probably isn't that that crazy, but you know big downhill sections with trees, and and they go, oh, I can ride a bike, so I can do this, and they just go flat out down hills and they go over jumps and and um he, when i used to observe him doing his sessions i used to say to him I, I i don't think i could i don't think i could do this because i can't stop them if i need to just like what you were talking about there um and maybe that's my inexperience on a bike but uh it used to used to freak me out a little bit watching kind of six or eight people bashing around on bikes you know in and around the trees and stuff that um that lack of control worried me a little bit um but you know he was always really good at it but not not for me because i couldn't keep them in one place and i couldn't control them if i needed to or if people were misbehaving or they were going too fast they just seemed to just get on and get it done so that that's my <laughs> that's my experiences of mountain biking uh actually i would say that the vast majority of our mountain biking clients are folks who assume that mountain biking uh was just bicycling they're like, oh, I ride a bike, I can mountain bike. And then they go and have an experience. Um, and that quality of that experience is somewhere on the scale from uh, not good to terrifying. And then they're like, oh, maybe I should seek out something. Um, maybe this just isn't riding a bicycle. Um, so uh, it's actually pretty good for business, um, that, that perception that it's just riding a bike. Um, so yeah, that's, but again, that's just my experience. <laughs> yeah there you go that yeah that's for me not not something i i me and nick had a, a one mountain biking experience together and it was possibly the worst thing i've ever done in my life i just flogged myself up a hill to then ride down and i got two punctures on the way down and i said that's it that's my that's my mountain bike career done and dusted in one evening thank you very much <laughs> um great um so we're talking about participants there um, and students, people being involved. So um, you guys are both you're very experienced um, coaches. So what what tips and advice can we give any coaches or instructors out there that, that want to um, think about how they can structure practice for their students? Have you got any kind of top tips or thoughts for them? I think the first thing is to is to have an honest conversation with clients and students about the barriers to practice and kind of, I think in many ways, um, kind of like destigmatizing practice because practice, when you say practice, people are like, oh, practice, uh, I don't want to practice, practice. I mean, you know, practice is hard and practice is uncomfortable and you have to do things you're not good at and, oh, and the list, I mean, the list of negatives is massive. So. Uh, I think the first thing, and then you take that and then you also put it in the context of, you know, Nick said earlier, these are recreational enthusiasts. These are people that are doing this because it's their release from the big world. It's something other than their day job. It's the time they get to spend with friends and people they, you know, care about. Um, and so once you put practice into that, that just this sounds not like a lot less fun, doesn't it? So I think we have to appreciate two things that people's perception of practice is often a negative one. And then the second thing we need to be thoughtful of that most recreational enthusiasts have 
just tons of barriers to engaging in practice. And just thinking about how many days a week the average paddle, like the average river paddler, sea paddler, how many days a week do they get on the water? Maybe one. If they have a job that accommodates, maybe two or an afternoon here or there. So those time units are super valuable. And then to say, oh, you have to use those time units to practice, to get better at something that no one is judging, rating, or giving you a trophy for at the end. There's a lot of obstacles. So I, I think one, having an honest conversation of what practice is, what are the expectations, what are the outcomes of practicing, um, and why it's beneficial. And then also, there's figuring out strategies and how they can integrate practice into their everyday so that when they're um, they're just you know messing around the boat or going for the club paddle or out with their friends that they can be engaged in that activity and at the same time the, they're paralleling they're engaged in very purposeful or intentional practice and so you know an example of that yesterday you know my wife and I went for a mountain bike ride we went to the mountain bike center and there's no real goal for the day. It was a break from work, beautiful day, go log some miles and have a bit of fun, you know, go fast downhill with our hair on fire. It just, that's what it was, that was what the, the day was about. And, you know, we, we got to a little tech, technical cobble section, which, you know, we, in the U.S. we call them baby heads. I'm not sure if that's appropriate in the U.S., but <clears throat> this section of baby heads that you have to ride through and, and we rode through it and it was, you know, it was technically challenging and we got through it successfully. And then we're like, hey, let's go. We're going to go lap this a couple of times. You know, we just went back and we lapped it a couple of times. We're like, hey, let's just try changing where our vision is. Let's look a little further ahead, you know, at the exit versus looking at the train in front of us. Um, let's mess around with our positioning on the bike. And we lapped it three times and the, we got better. And then we just rode along. So we're in the context of our day out, we recognize something that, hey, this is a feature we can use. It's challenging. It's an easy reset to go walk it a couple of times and re-ride it. Um, and the first time was a little awkward because there was the lines through it were really challenging um, and a bunch of sharp rocks that could have resulted in, you know, pinch flats, et cetera. And then, you know, the second time was a little better. The third time was, you know, felt really smooth and that was it. And then we just kind of, and that's a really good example of it didn't, it wasn't, it didn't, it was a little bit uncomfortable because we weren't good at it. Um, but we got better at it with just a little bit of application and it was parallel it was in the context of our out for, out for a fun ride kind of day. Um, and I think that those are some of the things that we could, as coaches, um, be really aware of just having conversations of, you know, what does your, what does your routine paddling look like and where are the opportunities in that, those routine sessions, those routine paddles that you can practice? Um, yeah, I, um, I endorse all of that from Todd. That's fantastic. And I've got this powerful image of you, uh, lapping the baby's heads, um, I was thinking about um, practice through play, and I think that kind of sums up my approach to a lot of games in the outdoors, because I'm determined on one level at least not to take things too seriously. Um, I'm there to have a good time if I can possibly manage it. 
And uh, Matt, you'll remember we coached together in Chile a couple of years ago. And you'll know that we needed a grasp of the Spanish language because many of our clients didn't really have any English to share with us. And I'd been there a few times. Um, and at first it was really hard because I didn't have any Spanish skills. And as a consequence, my coaching style became quite direct and very visual. And I didn't enjoy it because it was a departure from what I'd done before. And then after a few visits, I started to get a bit more confidence and I was learning Spanish phrases that were relevant to the work. And I felt very liberated because there was stuff I didn't know how to say. And I thought, do I really want to learn how to say that? Or should I pick a way of saying it that will become my way? And so I very quickly learned the Spanish for, for phrases like, let's go play, or let's experiment here, uh, let's enjoy this, let's discover. I don't think I ever learned the word for discover, but I invented a phrase that kind of got that message across. And I don't think, well, it's pretty easy to figure out the word for practice in Spanish, but there's other coaching type language that we might use between us that I never bothered to learn in Spanish because it, it, it didn't speak to the clients, if you know what I mean. And I tried to use language that encouraged a, um, yeah, a playful experimental approach to what we were doing. My remaining challenge was then to find a good place that we could go and play those games. Um, so yeah, yeah, I was thinking practice through play and the kind of language we use with our students can enhance or detract from the, the notion that they are going to go and have a good time. That's a critical bit is that when we're talking about <clears throat> because practice comes with some negative baggage is really, you know, speaking to the joy that you can get out of just, you know, messing around and experimenting. And a lot of that has to do with your mindset of like, hey, I didn't do well at this thing, but it was kind of fun and, you know, exciting. So I'm going to go do it again. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the things that we I remind myself all of the time that I get to do this work that other people do for fun. And therefore, um, there's a huge, I have a huge responsibility to make it fun. And at the end of the experience that people, sh it should kind of conjure up a sense of joy. Um, and I think people can, we can actually help people find the, that joy on their own when in those unmediated spaces that they can, you know, kind of derive that joy from practicing, getting better, challenging themselves, um, you know, and I'm sure you, both you and Nick have experienced it when, you know, a student goes and does something and they come back with, hey, have you thought about this? Or I've discovered this. Sometimes it goes the other way and you're like, whoa, don't discover that. <laughs> that worked that one time in that instant, but overall that's not, <laughs> we're going to try to avoid that. But that's that, you know, that, that joy in you know, unlocking the secret for themselves. So I think, yeah, that's, Nick brought up, that's a massive point. So just, uh, I want to come back to some things that have been said there, because I think there's some really important information. Um, and um, I think a lot of the people that, that Nick and I meet, I think the idea of them going out and getting one day a week is like, you know, one day a week to go and, and engage is is really high. Um, there's probably quite a lot of people that, that we um, we work with who maybe once a month is a is a you know a, a right amount of opportunity that they get. And I think that um, f if we're going to be doing engaging some coaching, we've got to be mindful that 
Um, some people have less opportunity to do these things, so that means that when they are doing them, we've got to kind of make the most of that that two days that they have or that maybe even that one week that they have, but quite often a weekend that, that, that they have to um, get the most out of it. So that's where, like you said, having that conversation with them beforehand um, and, and constantly having that dialogue is really, really important for them. And then you went on to talk about then about um, use two phrases, you said purposeful practice and you said intentional practice. Well, that for me, that links in with, with this scarcity of, of an opportunity, doesn't it? If we're just going to go and have a paddle around, well, that's great and that could be nice and enjoyable. But um, if it's one weekend in a month, well, then we need to make sure that what we're doing is purposeful and is intentional. And I might like in a moment to kind of explore those two words and just just so everyone's fully aware what what we mean by those two phrases um and then after that i've i've made some notes while you're both talking and i said you know reflecting on what we're doing so um helping to support the students in in how they reflect on what it is that they've done so you use the example of the mountain biking which i thought was great because you're integrating something within a within a day rather than saying right we're stopping now this is practice time um we're going to just practice going over the, the baby's heads for a while because that maybe brings in those negative um, negative connotations of what practice is. So if we're going to have little sessions like that, then create an opportunity at some point to reflect on what it was that we did so we don't forget about it. Um, and I'm sure you, you did that maybe when you were driving home or when you were having your evening meal that night. It, you won't have not mentioned that little section that you did, I would imagine. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to, to to pick up on some of those things, and I totally agree with you, Nick, about um, you know involving some sort of play. I think that helps with um, with these negative um, connotations of practice. But I guess as a as a as a challenge, not a challenge, but as something to, to to consider is that do you think that just open play, or is it kind of structured play, or you know work? Because play could mean just go off and do whatever, couldn't it? Um, so how how best if we're gonna uh, have learning through through play or through experience? How best do we go about structuring that play and experience so it is purposeful and intentional? Um. Okay. So so um. <clears throat> yeah, it's a great point. It's not enough for me to encourage my students to just go and play. So, some of them that might be all the invitation they require. And then my next challenge is to get them to come back to me at some point. Um, but not everyone's like that, are they? And sometimes if I'm as open as that, uh, a student might turn to me and say, well, how can I play in this environment? What, what's that going to look like? So by way of example, um, I'm frequently um, working with people to develop their rough water confidence and here on Anglesey that involves faster water and eddy lines and stuff like that um so we might we might look at varying the practice in a oh god in a structured way I try not to say that too um but if we've identified that things like boat speed and boat angle and position on the eddy line are relevant to them in terms of the outcome that they're seeking well, let's, let's explore, let's play with one element of that. Let's play with changing boat angles and see where, see where they go. See if they go in a good place. See if it takes them where they intended to go. 
um, and we could fix the other two elements and say let's cross on this bit of the eddy line as best we can let's 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 depart the eddy in this area and let's set a boat speed that feels kind of similar each time we do it all right now let's play with the angle there you go let's play with the angle so it's a it's a, a degree of focus and then if they go off and play with that for a while there's a pretty good chance that when i turn back to them and we have an exchange that I know what they've been experimenting with. Um, so I frequently use that and it's a form of play. But again, as coaches, we often use different language to describe all that, don't we? Yeah, from the client's point of view, it could be that they're playing with different bow angles to see what happens, you know? Hmm. So the idea of that is that, like you said, there are multiple, there are multiple things that can be changed there, aren't there? So boat speed, boat angle, position, stroke combination, whatever it might be. Um, and to go and play with all of those things probably isn't very helpful if 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 we're just changing lots of things lots of times. Is that is that what you're saying? So if we're by fixing it, it helps you from a coach's point of view, I mean now. By by fixing some things in place and saying, go and play with this. It, it gives it provides you, you use the word focus a minute ago so it gives you some focus is that for after the practice yeah i think um i think one of the advantages of um organizing our our, our practice that way um is to permit the students to notice the effect of certain changes because if we if we simply engage in open play and every time we make a move it's entirely different. Well, there's a, there's a time and a place for that. There's an argument for doing that as well. Um, when we come to reflect on their experiences, it might be that, that they might struggle to identify the impact of changing certain variables because some things will co combine, some things will cancel out, and it gets very hard to then uh, draw conclusions from that. Um, it depends on the stage of learning, doesn't it, and, how, and where people are with that. Uh, so I try frequently to direct people's attention to a series of specifics that they can that they can focus on in in, in, a, in a sequence of their choosing, and then hopefully start to build a bit more randomness into into the into the practice into the play. Um, mm. I feel like I'm trying to pin down what is, to my mind, at least quite a complex process. And it's starting to slip through my fingers a little bit. Um, but hopefully I made sense. Uh, Todd's going to bail me out now. I, I, I was thinking back, Matt, to your, when you kind of started framing this part of the discussion, you talked about personal, purposeful or uh, uh, intentional practice. And... You know, I'm wondering, you know, when we use that word, like, do listeners know what that word, what those words mean? Like, what, you know, what does, what is purposeful practice? Um, and you could just turn it right back around and say, oh, so it's about going out and practicing with a purpose. And yeah, so <laughs> again, that could be a, a big coaching cop out. But I think that if we rewind our brains back to it, the little anecdote that Nick gave us about Kelly and bouldering, and then you know, going out this weekend to Boulder, um, you know, that's a, that's a really good example of purposeful practice. Um, there's a goal, you know, there's a goal, there's a focus. Um, at some point during that day, uh, 
there's going to be a willingness to like accept that your comfort zone is going to expand or there's going to be a bit of challenge. Um, I suspect that there'll be there'll be feedback, whether that's, you know, feedback that's intrinsic coming from ourselves, or is it feedback from, uh, you know, Nick watching and saying, hey, I noticed when your foot was here, that happened. Um, and so, I mean, those are really the, the building blocks of purposeful practice. So, you know, if we think about this as coaches, um, we, it's kind of, if we're, if we want our clients and our students to practice pur purposely, we need to help them with that process. But I also think on the other side, if you're an enthusiast and you want to engage in practice, you know, knowing what those, what the fundamental elements or the, the foundational elements of purposeful practice are, because you can have that conversation with a coach or an instructor, even in a transactional in the, even in a transactional environment, you can just ask them, hey, I want to go do this on my own. I'm going to go out and climb, or I'm going to go out and bike, or I'm going to go out and paddle a bit. I'm going to do this on my own. What, is, what are some goals I should set for myself? Um, what areas do I, do I really need to focus on to achieve that goal? Um, what is a reasonable amount of challenge to take? Um, and, you know, and then the tricky one is feedback, particularly if you're engaged in something by yourself, uh, you know, how do we, how do we build pathways for intrinsic feedback? How do we, um, how do, and I think one of your listeners uh, had, you know, asked that question of how do we know when we're doing something well? Um, and that's something that we can, as coaches, help people unlock. But I also think uh, everybody knows the answer to that. They just don't realize they know the answer to it. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think that's a, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? That, that, um, you know, you said then, how do we, how do we know that what we're doing, what we're practicing is, is, is working. Um, and I guess that's a time thing as well, isn't it? You know, we can't necessarily know in the moment, um, because that's not learning, I suppose, is it? You know, if, if we can do it, if we do it a few times and get it right in the moment, well, that might seem great, but then that, that, um, that metric of whether we've learned it or not happens over a period of time, doesn't it? If we revisit it in a month, six months, if every time we revisit it, we have to start again, well, maybe we haven't learned it properly. The well, not properly. Maybe we haven't learned it the first time. Um, so thinking about how we structure that. I think when you talk about intentionality as well, um, going back to Nick's crossing of the Eddie line example, um, I've had experiences where I've asked people, um, you know, how's it going? Uh, you know, is, are you getting some success? And they say, yeah, yeah, I'm getting success. And I go, oh, great. What is it you're trying to do? And they go, well, just just do something. And because the the intentionality isn't there of, well, I'm trying to, it hasn't got to be as precise as go from here to there. Well, it's hard to judge whether, um, whether their performance is improving because what they're trying to do, the end result keeps changing every single time. Um, so if they're playing around with different variables, then sometimes having a having a, an agreed outcome, yeah, an agreed outcome, so that it's it's a yardstick to measure things by, that can often be be quite interesting. I think, um, especially during that kind of feedback session and when we're chatting about it, either in the moment or at the end of the day. Um, Just uh, the question 
no matter what discipline I'm working in, the question I always, I mean, I ask it so many times that my students at the college uh, uh, make fun of me for it, but I always ask folks, you know, how did that feel? And because I think that how do we know when we're doing something well is because it usually feels good. It's fluid, it's smooth. And I think one of the things that we can give learners as coaches is tuning them into those feelings. And so if something felt good, then right in that moment, letting them reflect on it, giving the opportunity some time and space to have a think on why did that feel good? What were all the building blocks of that good feeling? Like what contributed to it? And I think it also works it's just as value the other it's just as valuable the other way of you know if something didn't if the performance didn't feel good at some point it started good and then it didn't and then it went bad you know what i mean and so having them kind of rewind their brain back to the moment that it stopped feeling good and what was what was the link there what was the thing that caused it um you know when i when I put my 18 foot sea kayak 90 degrees to the eddy line and paddled into the race, just didn't feel good. But the moment there is like, hey, maybe angle is, maybe angle, you know, I remember this guy, Nick, I did something with him, he talked about that angle. And you know, that, that was an important thing. Um, and you can then kind of start unpacking your own performance. And I, I really think that that is, I mean, again, I'm sure, if any academics are listening to this, they're cringe, but I'm, I kind of think that that's like, you know, that's like, that's just intrinsic feedback right there. That's how we can get people to that spot is just getting them to connect with what they're feeling um, and then act on those feelings. Um, and, you know, that again, Nick's bouldering, uh, that little anecdote was like it hit on all the key bits because, you know, hey, what worked and what didn't work. And then the next question the coach was asking, was, hey, where did you feel pressure? Um, and those are powerful things. And so the next time Kelly's bouldering and she's feeling out of balance, you know, pressure might be the thing that triggers in her brain of now I need to, if I put more pressure here, um, and then if that, if she puts pressure and then pressure results in a feeling of balance and stability, that you asked, you just were talking about learning. That's learning, like that. Boom! Like learning has happened, and and unfortunately, uh, it it happened without a coach present. So I don't know. That could be that could be problematic from a business model standpoint. But that just means we need to have the next thing for the next time they show up. Yeah, I agree. I think I think it's a, a noble aim to try to make oneself redundant in this game. Um, and I tell myself that there will always be opportunities to work with new people. Um, yeah, the um, this notion of intrinsic feedback and the capacity that we have to, uh, that we all have to uh, to attend to it and to learn from it. Um, I suppose from a coach's perspective, we're perhaps drawing people's attention, focusing their attention on elements of that. We can recognize moments when um, a, a, a moment of reflection, uh, the how did it feel question would be a, a, a good thing to ask. And, it, and I do believe that our students, our clients get uh, more proficient at, at, at interpreting the feedback that they're able to generate for themselves if we 
provide a bit of structure for them. If we say, hey, there's a good moment here, let's 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 consider how it felt as you were crossing the eddy line. Well, let, let's let's drill into that a little bit more and let's be a little bit more specific and, and let's compare it to last time and in what way did it feel different and so on. I think there's a job for us there. And then if we reflect on it with our clients and we recognize that that was a valuable process to go through, um, we're a bit closer, we're a lot closer to them applying it in their own time, I think, as a non-academic. <laughs> We need you, Matt. Um, um, or I do. <laughs> the, the, those two, those two exchanges that we've just had there have, have also triggered something in my mind that um, in the past I've coached, let, let's call them traditional sports. So I coached a basketball team and I've coached a rugby team. And I think that's, um, that's definitely a challenge that we face in what we do in in let's lump them together again in adventure sports but using your example Taro, um if if my if my boat is at 90 degrees i'm gonna get some feedback and it's i'm gonna get a feeling um that's that's a challenge isn't it because often if they do that it's going to result in something which is probably the feeling they'll get is that of being wet um and then there's a whole series of things that have to happen whereas when i was coaching basketball if someone um you know, didn't have their foot position right or the way they were defending was opening up the basket rather than closing it. Well, we could just blow a whistle and go, right, let's just reset that and do it again. So the consequence for for error is a lot lower in those things. And I can imagine then if we take that to, to climbing or mountain biking, well, then we've got the same potential level of consequence, haven't we, if we, if we get something wrong. So I think it's definitely a... A, a challenge that we face i listen to a lot of other kind of podcasts and read a lot of other articles where people are involved in in those more traditional sports and i think a lot of these ideas are great but actually it's quite difficult to transfer some of those things into the sort of dynamic environments that we work in because we don't have that ability just to press pause and everything stops around us um so yeah it was just some some thoughts that i had around that yeah it's interesting that i i do uh, outside the college, I do some consulting work with uh, adventure sports coaches, but I also work with competitive or traditional sports coaches. And last year, I was working with a uh, in the U.S. a soccer coach, but a football coach, and uh, it was it was he was phenomenal. But he really wanted to get a handle on you know I had all this access to his coaching world, and he wanted to have access to mine. So he came along. To watch me work with some of my students from the college in a whitewater setting and on the drive back we were talking about it and he was able to pick out all the similarities of what we were working with in his world and my world but the thing he kept going back to he's like hey you know the only variables i really deal with are warm cold wet dry natural light or artificial light he's like the work that you do it's as if someone were to take the the football pitch and say hey, guess what? We're just going to turn it a 45 degree angle. And now you're playing uphill in one direction all the time. And then we're going to switch it the other way. And, uh, oh, and, you know, by the way, we're going to release a pack of wild dogs amongst play, <laughs> you know? And he's like, there's, he said that, that was the thing he had the most trouble getting his brain around is that, um, that the consequences of the environment we work in. I think that that's something that, you know, I'm really, I appreciate that, but I think it's something that makes the adventure sports coaching world really unique um 
And it also, it's something that we need to be really thoughtful of when we're structuring that practice for the learner or the client when we know we won't be there. Um, because, you know, the consequences could be just getting your hair wet or it could be an absolutely horrible swim. Um, and we all know that there's, you know, there's a lot of folks that have taken that horrible swim and then they just kind of walk away from paddle sport because um, it was a devastating experience. And so I think we need to be, we need to be very aware of that on both sides. Yeah. And I, I you, again, you've triggered something else that, that although those environmental um, challenges are a, a challenge, um, I also think, and I agree with you that, that, um, that the the environments that we work in are also brilliant for getting out of the students the things that we want. We we all deliver um, coach ed courses, and um, I always say to the to, to the students um, that I have on them, I say that I find when they when they do the sheltered water um, coaching stuff, I find that the hardest because the environment's so simple, and you've got to be really creative where if i'm on the sea or i'm on a river well then the environment works for you and you you know you've got lots of variety going on and so i find that that having that um that sheltered water where maybe it's just an open lake you've got to be really creative with with how you go about structuring that practice and i find it a a bit easier when i work in kind of moderate water environments or advanced water environments where there's lots of things going on because um there's there's loads of tools out there. I mean, there's other skills involved with recognizing those and utilizing them. But um, I definitely think that although it's a challenge, it's actually a, a welcome challenge often, and it's really useful, isn't it? If we're going to look at, at creating some sort of practice which is representational, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, well, then we don't want to constantly be working in really sheltered environments where everything's nice, and then go right, just go and transfer this to the, the to the harder stuff, and expect them to make that that jump from from those easy conditions to more challenging conditions and um, which kind of leads me on to a question here um so so does your practice venue differ from your performance venue and if so how and why should it as as a coach i've used those phrases to lighten the atmosphere sometimes when we've been working on a set of skills and i think you've been there and we've done this together um we've agreed some challenges with the students and uh, that challenge will involve making a set of moves and the environment in which we're in, we could practice it over there or over here or around the corner. And we agree a place where our students are going to come and um, put on a performance for us and show us how good they are. But of course that brings a certain degree of pressure because the presence of the coach and sometimes other students can interfere with the, the willingness to experiment. So we've also agreed practice areas and we've said, go on, and just, if you're over there, we know that you're working it out. And if you want us, then get our attention and we'll come and join you. But if you are over there, we'll leave you to it. And when you come over here, it's because you want to show us what you've figured out. Uh, I've used, I've used that terminology in that way, but I think, um, what what I'm now considering is in my own uh, experience of learning skills in the outdoors. Um, let's uh, let's pick an example. Well, well, you know, I got into into skiing in Chamonix some years ago, and I, I had a background, Todd, in, in in resort skiing in my early adult life. So uh, along the way, I developed some pretty 
decent technical skills, but back then I didn't know the mountain environment at all. And when I got to Chamonix, I was surrounded by all these dream goals and I wanted to go and experience some of them. Um, I knew that within a certain range of, 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 uh, of, of, of root grades, my technical skills would be fine. That wasn't a problem. I could remain within that ability level. However, um, my safety and my ability to go on successfully have those experiences was rooted in tactical decision making understanding the environment better and i recognized quite quickly that if i was going to stay safe and look after myself i'd better make some good decisions and you asked me about practice and performance areas matt this was a challenge for me because i didn't need to keep practicing skiing on steep slopes underneath the lift I needed to go into a more complex environment. That was where I wanted to achieve my goals. And I found it difficult to select appropriate routes. It took a while for me to gain some confidence in choosing areas that, that were appropriate for me to develop those skills. And I couldn't call them practice areas because I was I was pretty close to doing what it was that I wanted to do. I was I was putting my toes into what you might call a performance area, Matt. And I couldn't just jump in and take the plunge because the the hazards of the environment were so great that I I might not I might not come back at the end of the day. Um and I think that if I'd simply selected practice areas where the objective hazards were more or less absent or certain key ones were missing, I might never have got to a point where I could, in good conscience, safely go and have my experiences in this performance zone. Um, so there you go, uh, an anecdote. I don't know if that helps you. Yeah, it does. It does. I um, I think back to when, maybe when I first started coaching and, and some of my experiences that I had as well, being coached, but... Um, I, I was I was making people do things in a in a really tiny little pond and I was saying, Oh, if we practice this here, well then then if you go in on a river trip or you go out well, I didn't even know about sea kayaking then, that was a different world for me there. But if you go out on this river trip, well well what you've done here just transfers to to the river. So if you if you paddle fast and you do a sweep stroke and you do a low brace, well then you're going to turn and that's going to help you cross over an eddy line. And it was great because it was a really structured thing to do on the flat water. And then when then I then tried to do the same thing or watch them transfer it to a river, then it all kind of fell apart and I couldn't really early on I couldn't understand why those things were happening. So why if we've practiced it well and they can perform it well here, why can't they just you know, transfer it across to there um, and I think it's that that element of making that the the practice that we do making it representative of what it is that we're going to go and get involved in and like you just said for your example there was that you couldn't just play around on the sort of slopes that I'd ski on and think that that is going to easily transfer to the sort of stuff that I would never I would never go on I, I think that uh, I think we've we're kind of pulling apart some of the inherent challenges with the stuff in in an adventure sport because we know that the 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 practice you know the 
the more representative the practice environment is of the performance environment, the more the better the quality of the practice because it's, you know, again, your example of, you know, doing something on the pond and then trying, there's a disconnect and then we take it to the river, it just didn't work because the practice environment wasn't representative of the performance environment. So we know that, we know that, that, that the quality of that practice is gonna be enhanced the closer we can get to the performance environment. But then on the flip side, as you know, Nick's anecdote is, you know, the performance environment has massive consequences um, potentially. And so that, you know, that decision-making around, you know, what is the right practice environment for me? Um, and it, I go back to that word representative of, um, because I think that gives me a little bit of, as, a, as an enthusiast, it gives me a little bit of wiggle room that it doesn't have to be the full environment but it has to have components of the performance environment. Um, and if we're thinking about this in the context of how do we help our clients or our students engage in that independent or unmediated practice, that's another thing that we're kind of on our list of things to help them with is how do, I how do they identify those zones? Um, and, and that because all of those zones come with a certain degree of risk. Uh, and I, so it would be, you know, it would behoove us to really be thoughtful about, you know, how do we, you know, what is an appropriate practice zone? Um, and then so that, you know, how much water do I need moving in order to uh, get the a desired effect on the boat? And, you know, what I often tell folks, and, you know, you guys might agree or disagree with, me when folks are a little bit hesitant about practicing on their own in environments that represent the performance environment, uh, particularly with dynamic water and a whitewater boat or sea kayak, you know, I tell them just to look for things that there's just enough water to push the boat around. Um, and if there's that much water, just enough force that you have to manage the force to get the boat to do what you want it to do, then that's enough of, that's a practice zone. It's representative of the environment. Um, and as your comfort, like Nick was saying with skiing, as his comfort increased and his comfort in decision-making increased, he can get little closer to the performance environment with, you know, each bit. Um, and I, you know, I do a bit of backcountry skiing and one of the things that, you know, we take really good resort skiers and take them to the backcountry and, you know, there's a change in equipment, they're skiing with a pack on their back, um, there's more obstacles, but the one thing that they always come back to is that the snow feels different. And it's because there's not, you know, a groomed surface underneath that fresh powder. And even folks that ski off piste in the trees alongside the resort, that, those, that track, that snow is really packed in by hundreds and hundreds of users setting those lines. Whereas you go and ski wild snow and, you know, you can have five feet of snow and find bottom, um, you know, and, you know, you can find the dirt and rocks underneath occasionally. And that, but again, they don't need to go to the high consequence environment. They just need to find some wild snow that they're comfortable skiing on. And just making those turns to just get a feel for what it feels like to like modulate the pressure on their skis versus always just really driving energy into those skis that, you know, sometimes when you have a pack on your back and you're skiing wild snow, you don't really need to, you don't need to boss the skis around. You can let the skis do what they're designed to do. And, you know, I think that that's, 
it is a give and take with us from a coaching standpoint of, you know, helping people to identify and discover those environments and then also know when they're able to move the line a little bit further and get a little closer to the performance environment. Yeah, that's definitely a, a challenge that you face, isn't it? That 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 people may want to go and and operate in an environment, but we've got to help with that progression. And if we if we put them into that more random environment where it's maybe more dynamic or you know whatever we want to call it and um, if we move them there too quickly like you said before it could put people off and it can be a really negative experience for them so um thinking about how we how we layer our progressions and how um how we make those transitions through the different phases so i like what you're saying there that if there's something happening well then that's that's good and they might quickly move on from that but if if they go straight to the fast stuff well then it might it could it could be a good learning environment for them some people may go for it but others it may be really negative and it, it could have um severe consequences for them or it could just have things that knock them back and and damage their their confident level confidence levels and um their ability to progress into into those environments again so um yeah i think that's a, a really good set of thoughts there um great i i've just noticed that 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 time is is massively moved on um and i know that we could probably talk about this stuff for a long 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 time um and there's lots of stuff that we haven't touched on that i know is really relevant to the things that we have been talking about so maybe we need a part two at some point um to to finish us off if you're both happy for us to just ask a couple of questions which have um come from our members uh and they're really relevant and the sort of things that would have filled in anyway. So we've got a question from um, from Greg. And he, sa- he his question reads, um, what are the main motivations for practicing our skills? And how can we tap into these when designing our sessions, especially when delivering a series of sessions for the same paddlers? So how can we, how can we help with people's motivation during practice, do we think? Nick answered this uh, earlier in, in a bit of a roundabout way, but really it's about, um, you know, that idea of like, you know, what's the motivation? And the motivation is is joy, that the, the more skilled I am at this, actually you've answered this question like three times, the more skilled I am at this, that that increases the fun factor, it increases the joy factor. Um, but then there's also that relationship between, you know, confidence and you know, how confident I feel in the environment. So that's the other, I think, thing that this hinges on is motivation for practices that practice results in increased competency and that increased competency results in, you know, increased confidence. So the confidence to get into a more complex zone that's gonna um, have like potentially a higher fun factor. So I, I, I really think that that's the, you know, if we need to sell someone on practice, um, those are some of the things that I, you know, I use as like, that's part of my sales pitch of the why. Um, because again, there's no trophy at the end. You know, it's not like we're going to be, it's not like I'm going to be first team all state in whitewater kayaking. Um, but, you know, I'm going to be able to go hop on that bit of class three. Um, and my fun factor is going to increase because I'm going to be able to hit every eddy, surf every wave and, you know, look stylish while doing it. Do you think how the how the coaching session is framed from the point of view of um, whose coaching session it is can help with motivation? So whether it's it's 
my session as the coach delivering it to some students or whether it's their session as the students and I'm just facilitating that practice. So I was just thinking about um, the times we go out to uh, to practice um, without a coach around. And, um, <clears throat> you know, some people go out and they're able within their chosen sport to practice alone. Um, but frequently it's, it's, a, it's a group of people that go out. And um, I think it's really important just as we do in our coaching world for that group to have a chat about what they want to get out of the day and make sure their aims are aligned, make sure that everybody gets to at least contribute to what they think a good day is going to look like. Um, and you know, different personalities tend to come to the fore. So if you're the type of person who tends to sit back and let all the decisions get made by other people, well, you know, step up, have a think about what your day wants to look like and, 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 and have, have the conversation. Um, cause then you've got a degree of autonomy over what it is you're doing that day. If you're following somebody else's plan, it can be a little demotivating. From a coaching perspective, I think we'd all agree that we we need to work with people's motivations because we can't impose ours on them. It tends to have the opposite effect. Um, Todd was just talking about um, you know, competence and the way in which we, we, we measure our progress. If we're out in a social group, let's let's try to measure progress by the feedback we get from the moves that we make rather than through comparison between other group members. Because while that can sometimes have a benefit, it frequently introduces other emotions and it's not always a very good metric for comparing how you're getting on. Um, so it sounds like we need a, uh, a supportive team of people to go paddling with who are aligned in their goals and who are enjoying the experience of getting better and then they've got a sense of relatedness to each other. There's probably a theory about that somewhere. I suspect we'll have to ask Matt to chime in on that. Uh, <laughs> but Matt, the, the other bit you brought up is, you know, I, I suspect the three of us are probably all in the same camp with this, but you know, I, when I'm like, whose session is it? And it's always, for me, it's always the learner session. And I think that because it's a learner session that I tend to, um, give them everything. I do a lot of like the man behind the curtain, like this is what's going on in my brain. Um, and this is why we're doing what we're doing. And so I'm very, I'm constantly transferring because it's their session. I'm giving them all the bits that when they go and replicate this, when they choose the appropriate practice environment, they have this whole, I, they have, they obviously have my, my playbook for that day you know, because they've been exposed to it. So they're like, oh, well, hey, these are some of the things that Todd did with me and I can try some of those things here. And, um, you know, here are some of the bear traps he said to watch out for. And so I think that that's, I think you, you really hit on a super important element is that if we, if it's about the learner, the session is about the learner, um, they're far easier. We've given them a lot of, we've given them all of the, we've given them the operating, we've given them access to the operating system. So therefore they're able to replicate it on their own. Um, if it's about us as the coach, it tends to be more transactional. And I would suspect that it'd be quite a bit harder for them to replicate that practice experience. Yeah. And it's the, mo coming back to that question that Greg raised, it's about that motivation. If it's our, if it's our, 
the student's idea, then you're more motivated to get involved with it than if someone's enforcing something upon you. Great. Now, here we go. Here's the next question that he's asked. And um, this is the one that's going to sell a million books. So um, uh, how can you design better practice sessions for groups with different skill levels? We, we we could we could picture a scene where the the uh, the spread of ability and experience in the group is so great that it becomes quite difficult to select an environment that meets everybody's needs. Um, uh, let's 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 agree at the outset that that bandwidth is manageable. And one of the ways I I test that notion when I consider the types of venues we might use on a given day is can we all as a group go to a place where there's going to be uh, an appropriate level of challenge for each member of the group. Yeah, and thankfully the programs I run are involving relatively few people and there's, there's, there's debate and discussion and an exchange of information before we all meet. So, so I, I find ways to avoid the, the, uh, the more difficult scenario where you've got a, an enormous spread of, of abilities. Anyway, um, <clears throat> many of the venues I use or many of the locations we find along the coastline have got a range of different challenges and some some places I can agree within the same safe area, um, a spot where some people are going to operate, other people are going to be to the other side of me and I might divide my time between. We need to make sure there's structures within the group where both um, the coaching process and safety is, is taken care of. You know the Penryn Mauer venue very well, Matt, and you and I have worked there a great deal. Uh, on many days, it lends itself to that because you've got less challenging water closer to the headland and then progressively bigger conditions as you move a short distance to the other side of the major rock that's there. And you and I have often found ourselves sitting in that central eddy working with groups in, in different zones. I'm also, since we've discussed hard moves on easy water, um, I'm a big fan of <clears throat> trying to find appropriate levels of challenge even within the same environment for different group members because there could be less or more challenging ways to get across a body of water or to move in and out of a zone. And it could be that our students want to work on different skills. So that's a challenge for us as coaches because now we've got to do a bit of... Um, uh, plate spinning to, to direct our attention to, to one or two people in the group and then to switch away from them and, and work sometimes literally physically in a different area. Um, it's, it's more challenging, but I believe it's very doable if we consider those options. I think just to build on what Nick said, you know, I, I'll put on my educator hat right now and in education, we have something called differentiated instruction. And I actually use that as a framework for coaching quite a bit. And, you know, we differentiate based on the learner's profile, their level of interest and, uh, or their interest, and then their level of readiness. And then the things that we can differentiate is, you know, content, what we teach, process, how we teach it, and product, how we assess it or how we, uh, we measure performance. And then the final one is the thing that the bio that we can term is environment, you know, challenging environment, less challenging environment. So I use that curriculum framework as a coaching framework quite often because we have on every, any given day, we have people turning up for a whole bunch of different reasons. So Matt might want to be, hey, it's my first day in kayak, but 
my my aspirant goal is you know after five lead sessions i want to be on the red bull team and you know nick's you know goal is like you know i you know i just really want to get down class two um without you know sphincter crunching sphere and you know but i need to meet you know you have those are two radically different interests um and so again gathering information in advance and then um being thoughtful about you know what i'm teaching how i'm teaching it or what i'm coaching how i'm coaching it the environment i'm coaching it in and how i'm measuring that performance so you know for one person even just using the same feature for one person the the performance outcome may be you know to get across something with as little downstream you know uh loss as possible you know for someone else it may be to move into the center of the flow hold position and then move across the flow in as few strokes as possible uh you know and so you're setting very different challenges for the same in the same environment um based on you know what that person is interested in their level of skills readiness and then i may change my process based on how they prefer to learn or what their background is um, so I, I i kind of fall back on that that teacher tool very often as far as how to meet those uh those very varied needs of of the learner great really good answers there i think i think um as you can probably gather from that greg there's you know there's lots of things to consider isn't there but having that having that conversation at the start and especially if it's in a in a club setting then agreeing some of those um those aims early on maybe days or even weeks beforehand can really help um cool um right so uh next question and that's from andrew um and he said i'd be interested to hear and again we've kind of talked about this but i'd be interested to hear from you um about the use of extrinsic or intrinsic feedback um with regard to how do i know if i'm getting it right from an intrinsic feedback point of view and i, I guess we've kind of answered those things but any anything else that anyone would like to add to those if it feels good, then you're probably getting it right. But then the crux, and I think Nick or Matt mentioned this, is is taking that time to reflect on it. Why did it feel good? What were those? What were those component skills? What were the building blocks that led to that really that that good positive feeling? Great. There you go. Great. I think I say, Andrew, we've 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 talked about um, feedback early on. It's quite a big subject, really. Maybe that's something else that we could cover in a. In a, in, in a future episode um, I, I've, ju- I've got one personal well I'll say personal question but it's aimed at, aimed at you Todd it's something that you mentioned before and I was just interested in in exploring it for, for a brief moment so um, I'm going to go off script a little bit now you talked before about um, your philosophy um, being a uh, having an educational philosophy and um, in, you know, involving people, I'm just interested, and maybe maybe just a few moments from you, in in how that fitted and how that worked for you when you were in the military. You know, were you able to to keep that philosophy when you were there, or is that something that that, that developed after you left the military? Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> so I would say that um, one of the things that really frustrated me, you know. I think we all know this that when whenever we're at a moment of conflict when things just don't seem to be working whether it be at a job or whatever if we went back to our personal philosophy our coaching philosophy our educational philosophy we'd probably realize that 
the situation is in direct conflict with that philosophy. And that's what causes that discomfort or that awkwardness. And I would say that that was a hallmark of my time in the military was particularly in learning areas that, um, that it was, and for a whole bunch of very appropriate reasons, very, very transactional. Um, until I progressed to a place um, where because of the operational needs and the mission, um, you needed to be more uh, of a problem solver than just an implementer. And then that's when it kind of, that's when it changed. Um, and so I would say that, I would say that my, my, much of my educational and coaching philosophy was born out of both a little bit of frustration there, but quite honestly, um, with a lot of frustration from my educational experience from a wee kid till graduating high school, um, that type of learning just didn't work for me. And so, because it didn't work for me, and I realized by quickly looking around, it doesn't work for a lot of people, that maybe uh, we can change that. And so I think that that's where the, where to track the etymology of my <laughs> philosophy, it probably comes out of a lot of personal frustration with learning situations. And then how can I change that going forward? And ironically, um, we still bump into those folks and when I interact with them, they were like, you know, wow, this is, I, I, and it really pains me when people are like, well, I never really thought of myself as a smart person or as never thought of myself as a good learner. Um, but I've just proven to myself that I can learn things and I can be really good at them. And it's just, it's unfortunate when people have to figure that out in their 20s or 30s or even 40s or 50s, as opposed to, you know, when they're six years old. Um, and so I think that's, where does it come from? I think it comes from, I think it come, a lot of it comes from those places. Brilliant. What a great place to finish. Todd, I want to thank you very much for giving up your time. Um, I know it's been it's been a bit of back and forward, but um, we've got there in the end. And I think the, the thoughts and the experiences that you've brought to this this conversation have been been excellent. So thank you very much for giving your time today. No worries. Absolute pleasure. If you've enjoyed the show, why not take a look at our essential members program? get exclusive access to a huge range of videos, articles and webinars covering technical skills, leadership principles and coaching issues from the world of paddle sports with many topics easily transferred to other adventure sports. We think it's amazing value so come and check it out. Remember don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Until next time have fun and stay safe.